from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Hertha Sweet Wong of the English Department discussing her book, Picturing Identity, Contemporary American Autobiography in Image and Text. She is joined by Linda Rugg of the Scandinavian Department. All right. Um, first of all, it's a great honor for me to be asked to be in conversation with Hertha about this book. Um, sometimes when a colleague produces a book, you've been living with them and the book for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and this, we've been in conversation and thought process um, on different little aspects surrounding this book as friends and colleagues um, for a while. This book is incredibly ambitious, um, and, and it fulfills, I think, its ambition in terms of covering a broad array of, uh, yeah, everybody else, too. <laughs> Me, too. I think mine's over there. Um, covering a really broad array of different forms of media, um, different cultures, um, different continents. I mean, there are different continents involved here. Um, and the interface, not only um, in each of her artists between text and, and visual um, representation, but also with, within the book itself, because it's a, a big challenge to create your own intermedial text, because that's what this is. <laughs> it is also an intermedial text. Um, I first met Hertha, and I don't even know if Hertha's going to remember this, but it was a long time ago, and it was at a conference where I heard her giving a paper on her first book, which was um, also a very rich book about a subject that not very many people, including myself, knew about, pictorial representations from Native Americans. Um, and I was so excited uh, by what she had to say at that time that I thought, OK, this is a person I want to talk, talk with some more. At that time, I wasn't at Berkeley. But then I came to Berkeley, and I was able to, to enter into conversation with, um, with Hertha. Um, and Another aspect of what Hertha has done here is, you know, combined her her very rich background um, in English literature and American American cultures, American literature, um, with with her experience in art art practice, uh, where you really dove in and um, were working in the in the department there for, as chair. Um, one of the things that also came up in our conversations was how much you've been able to engage your students with many of the aspects of this text. This is a work that encompasses not only Hertha's thought um, and, and her research and her experience with the artists, interface with some of the artists, um, but also with her students, where she is able to introduce her students um, to a lot of the very challenging um, and very rich material uh, in this book. So the very first thing I want to do is congratulate Hertha on having produced a beautiful book I understand uh, the amount of time, effort, and passion that went into the creation of this book. And so it's, uh, it, it kind of feels, it almost feels like, yes, you know, this is our accomplishment, but it's totally Hertha's accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really eager to hear more about what Hertha has to say about it. Um, I mean, one of the things that I thought about asking you was and then this just gives you a little bit of a chance also to introduce the book. What what motivated? I know that there's a there is a, a thread that runs through all of these that has to do with the construction of identity, mm -hmm. um, history, memory, and trauma for many of these people. The creation of art out of history and memory and trauma. Um, but what led you to to pick these particular people? What attracted you to their work and what made you think, okay, these people belong in this kaleidoscope together? That's a good question. Um, OK, well, thank you for all those kind words. And uh, thank you for showing up uh, on mm -hmm. today. Um, the th my selection process was based, actually, originally on formal aspects of the work. Mm -hmm. um, I was teaching a lot, not necessarily all of what's in the book, but 
I, and I was interested in exploring different image text relations, some produced by writers or people who identified primarily as writers, others who identified primarily as artists, but who were both uh, writing and making, uh, and doing so in, in innovative ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I, I really was interested in autobiography or self-narration and self-representation. Narration meaning the story over time. Representation could be just a snippet of a moment um, that uh, was not just using images in some illustrative mode. It's not just a little thing like you read along and inset in the middle of the autobiography or the memoir. Here's a picture of me when I was two. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's you know when we lived at such and such. Mm -hmm. it, that is a very different engagement uh, between mm -hmm. image and text than what I was uh, coming to discover could happen in a variety of ways. And so, um, when I found things that seemed to be particularly interesting to me and offered questions around. Um, you know, like, how do you conceptualize the page? Mm -hmm. In comics, they talk about, Art Spiegelman talks about the page as a unit of space and time, and how are you going to break that down? And that's done through frames and panels and, and um, you know, the uh, gutter in between them, or, or uh, there are these conventions that get activated, mm -hmm. and they have a very, they create a very unique reading experience. I was interested also in the experiential aspect of it, um, the sense that when you're looking at many of these, you're looking and reading, and you know what comes first and how does that work. And, and most of these require readers, viewers, to slow down and figure out what is the relationship between here this bit of text and this image, or in the case of artist books, um, how do I even read this? This is a book, but it looks like a, you know, a leaf, or it looks mm -hmm. like a tablet. And I have some images I can show you to make it more concrete. Uh, but how do you begin? You know, and so a page might be uh, something that looks like a little wooden slat, and you can move those around. And you know, so artist books are in dialogue with the history of the book as a form, as a time-based medium. And so, um, you know, the, it's basically looking, looking at an object uh, through the through, through the eyes of a book, and it's a whole history. Mm -hmm. So, there, there's one uh, book artist I talk about who, I talk about how she creates these architectures of cognition, mm -hmm. because as you enter each book, and they're all unique from this tiny to huge. Um, you have to figure out how to navigate it. And we're so used to conventional reading where our eye just mm -hmm. you know, runs down the page and we are not conscious that we're even doing that. That's just the, what we do. I was also interested in the ways that um, we're reminded that text is also image. And it's just that we've agreed to interpret these marks on the page in certain ways and that we then read them really quickly and assume we know what they mean. Some of the people I work with have done um, word art, mm -hmm. um, so there's nothing but you know a painting of words, and and you know how do you account for the textures and the shapes and the colors, and the juxtapositions and sets of relations in those, and so it, it you know I was interested in this kind of proliferation of possibilities that was really going on in my mind. I saw that what I was finding was that the people I was most interested in all seemed to be beginning to produce in the 70s and 80s, kind of post-civil rights movement, when the silos of disciplinary isolation were becoming more permeable, uh, where they were breaking down in some instances, and people were experimenting. And sometimes that experimentation um, was just messy and you know not very uh, or maybe productive as a part of getting to someplace else, but other times it was actually quite brilliant. And so most of the people that I write about are also really thinking about relational, uh, in, uh, relational subjectivities. In other words, we's rather than I's. They're insisting on even though supposedly the identity has been deconstructed out of existence, you know, people are keep 
reconstructing and, and cobbling it, even if it's contingent, even if it's variable, even if it's multiple. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that fluidity. Uh, and without necessarily doing something like, say, Nikki Lee does, where she, she kind of challenges the idea of any stable identity by morphing into various communities, dressing, speaking, behaving, hanging out with people, kind of a, a participant observer um, uh, status within a particular subculture. And then she takes all these photographs of herself, and she looks like she could be a Japanese tourist. She looks like she could be in a, uh, uh, what do they call it, a trailer park with primarily poor people who are white. She looks like she could be uh, fitting in this African-American hip-hop group and so on. So there's the sense that she loses herself uh, as a Korean-American woman in these various identities. The people that I'm talking about are really insistent that they have shared histories and they have um, shared communities. And not that it's all you know, cohesive, but that there is a way to engage that. And so when talking about the I, you know, it's mm -hmm. really about the we. So what many of these, um, these authors and, and writers and artists had to do was to kind of create a, a more level playing field by undoing histories of misrepresentation. And a lot of those were visual as well as written. And then creating new ones in order to even have them be visible at all, because otherwise the old uh, stereotypes and misrepresentations just dominate. So there's a fair amount of work of, uh, that goes on in, in that regard. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of dialogue back and forth uh, also with historical you know, precursors and so on mm. that gets folded into some of the, the literature. So basically, getting back to your original question, mm. I wanted to have um, a, a, a sprinkling of a whole spectrum of possibilities, none of which really look anything like the others, thinking about these image-text relations and something that I've called for a long time visual autobiography, which was actually a term I found out was coined by Joe Spence in uh, about 1980-something, maybe 70-something. Um, but there's finding a vocabulary for what I was interested in has been really, really a, a big part of the challenge. And if I can show you maybe one slide, um, if I can find it. Um, yeah, so I used to, I started off calling it visual autobiography. I taught with Lou Watts, a photographer, a course that was cross-listed with visual studies and architecture with English. It was a creative writing course. Uh, it was also cross-listed with American studies and UGIS. We were trying to get people who were primarily makers and people who are primarily writers to get together to talk about this thing called visual autobiography. But then I went through terms like intermedia autobiography and inter-art, which I kind of liked, but nobody else did. And then it's used in certain sub-circles of the art world where people you know, claim what they know. Intersectional autobiography also has some possibilities. Mm -hmm. Transmedia autobiography, mm -hmm. hybrid autobiography, autobiography in image and text. The, finally, the editors thought that that subtitle made more sense, was more, uh, was more comprehensible to more people than if trying to use one of these mm -hmm. that might be considered more trendy or, or specialized. But I think those are, with slight distinctions, can be used um, uh, kind of uh, in place of each other. They each have slightly different focus or, or emphasis. Mm -hmm. um, another term that I really, oh, I also want to say that I think um, with the rise of like graphic memoir or graphic narrative is t really the rise of it being taken seriously in academia. They're struggling to come up with those kinds of vocabularies as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that um, is just, I like to remind people that, you know, that marks on the page, the words are images also, but also that all media is transmedia. There are always some way that it crosses over uh, into others. And so, you know, there's even, even text is not simply some kind of pure form isolated from every other. Um, Dick Higgins introduced a term, intermedia, that I thought was pretty interesting. 
And he did it, and then he revised it after about 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, it, he says with artwork that seems to fall between media, it's conceptually that are, between media that are already known. Uh, it's work in which the visual element is fused conceptually with the word. This is a really big deal for a lot of artist books, but although not all artist books use words. Um, he distinguishes it from multimedia, and that just means that they're working in more than one uh, medium, whereas there's fusion is really what the um, focus is on for him. He um, later says that actually this intermedia, it's really interesting, is a, it seems to be a kind of a temporary place. Once it's become established as a particular form unto itself, it ceases to be intermedia and just becomes another medium, which I think is an important issue. So I think there are some of the, the works that I talk about that are genuinely intermedia and others that are, you know, they have more of a vocabulary and more of an, uh, an acceptance in certain already uh, accepted uh, media. Mm -hmm. So just wanted to... Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, one of the questions that came up for me as I was looking at this was that it's, it's of course, visual. And in your book, you know, you have also the textual and the visual um, blended together, you know, and speaking to each other. Um, but it's also the case that, that these artworks evoke other senses, right? Yeah. So it's, you have, in some cases, you have objects uh, that have, you know, three-dimensional uh, being in space, and you also have... You have quilts, you know, um, and what do you think about the other senses being engaged with these with these artworks, and how yeah. do we account for that as scholars when we're really working ourselves in a medium that is pretty much restricted to the page? Yeah, yeah. that has come up because there are people who are wanting to come up with a kind of uh, multi-sensory theory about mm -hmm. art or literature, particularly art. And uh, the one book I could find that tried it was really, really, um, it was a <laughs> collection of essays, and it was really more about orality. Oh, and there was yeah. one thing about the visual, and there was certainly nothing about the sense of taste or smell or touch, touch yeah, or yeah. anything yeah. like that. So it, it really, you know, it was interested in doing something that it, it didn't even fully attempt to do. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an area that really um, is ripe for development. One of the artists in particular that I talk about actually incorporates sound into her installation uh, okay. piece. Mm -hmm. She's a folklorist and a photographer. And um, I can actually show you a slide quickly of, um, sorry. Um, Really, it's hard to see. Uh, mm -hmm. Her name is Carrie Mae Weems. She's an African-American artist and folklorist. And um, she created, she, she does, a, she's a, a primarily a photographer. And she, her early work was sequences of photographs and accompanied by text. Um, and one big project in 2000, she printed her photographs onto these diaphanous fabrics and hung them from the ceiling creating this installation piece. And then so there were these images and then text. And you were entered this kind of architectural diaphanous structure made of words and images. Mm -hmm. There's also a soundtrack to it. Mm -hmm. And there were images on the walls. And so you have this very interactive, experiential piece that you literally have to go into. And that's the only one of the ones I talk about that really uses sound. Mm -hmm. um, and it's some of the voices that she uh, recorded of some of the work she was doing. This was um, her work called The Hampton Project. Some of you may be familiar with it, in which she was went to the ar archives of Hampton, um, what's now Hampton University, but it was a, one of the um, early free schools for, for blacks. And about 15 years later, they admitted uh, native young people, mostly people who had been um, defeated in the wars. Mm -hmm. They brought them into the school, another kind of prison. And she excavates that history and, and starts linking African-American and Native American histories as they relate to her family and her community. And in doing that, um, 
she, you know, kind of bringing back voices from the archives. So she's kind of trying to give us this uh, photographic installation piece that uh, animates the archive in a critical way, retelling a story that, or a perspective that Hampton didn't like to hear. They banned her from showing the exhibition at the school, but it traveled all over and was very well received. So. And your, your evocation of this particular artwork um, and the way in which the, the viewer enters in, and this sort of emphasizes what you were talking about earlier, how the experience of reading is transformed mm -hmm. by these artworks that you're, that you're featuring here. And, and, and the, especially the interface between the viewer slash reader, however you want yeah. to be, you have to be, reconstruct yourself, right, as viewer and reader at the same time, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I was just wondering about this experiential aspect um, and the way in which um, the viewer uh, or reader is constructing him or herself in, uh, while confronting these works. And so I wondered a little bit about your own experience when you're, when you're confronted with these works. What is it? in these works that, that, that makes you rethink your position as a viewer or a reader? How does this expand your perspective on what representation is about what, and what potentially what these narratives also are about, what meaning those narratives have for you um, Well, as I think there's this enduring you know, self-discovery, self-critique, mm -hmm. um, self-examination that's going on in the self, not in this narrow individualistic sense again, but in a more collective collective sense. And I think that's just been an enduring interest of mine, whether I'm reading literature or, or not. The ways that these kinds of works um, make me become self-aware of my own literal positioning. Like in this Carrie Mae Weems, you're literally walking through. You can see the image of... Um, you can see an image, and behind that, there's another uh, piece of fabric, and you can see the text. And so you get this sense of a palimpsest, mm -hmm. because you, and this is something that often happens in, in, in artist books, where you can have a, a vellum piece that maybe there's text, and behind it is an image. So you can read the text if you open it up this way <laughs> all by itself. But when it's overlaid over the image, it takes on another resonance. You have this sense of layers and depths of conversations that are going on. Uh, some of that uh, harkens back to these temporal dimensions of history and memory. And some of it harkens um, to uh, kind of more crosstalk uh, between and among individuals. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that kind of a uh, thing. Mm -hmm. Sitting in Mills College, where they have all of Julie Chen's art books, um, as just, you know, really a delight. You have to go there to see them. You can't check it out of the library or buy it and put it on your shelf because that's just not the kind of object it is. So um, that I always thought was great fun. And I'm going to mm -hmm. show you one example of her work. Mm -hmm. um, see if we can get a sense of this. Okay. This one. Oops, this one. So this is a book of hers called Bon Bon Ma, a, uh, a fine assortment of books. And it's presented as a, you know, she's punning on the candy and the, the good word and all of that. And um, so she presents, and usually artist books are in a particular box. In fact, there's a specialty. There are people who do nothing but make books that are resonant with a particular artist book. So it has to be something that's in dialogue with what's inside. It has to be, it, so it's, con, it's conceptually as important as the book or the books themselves. Mm -hmm. So here's this candy box. And inside she has, uh, what is it, five books, six books, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then we take each of those out. And here they are kind of, <laughs> yeah, five of them. So in, in each one, there's letterpress. Uh, and so, for instance, this is done with a, an accordion binding on the side, these in the shape of leaves. Each one of these little leaves is a page. You have to kind of peek into it to be able to read it because you can't just open them up like a real book. This one is like one of those little kids' games with the little silver balls inside, and you try to get it to go where you want. And it's in the 
shape of a labyrinth, and it's a very meditative little poem about, you know, life and the whole spiraling time thing. Um, this one looks like this little soap, but it's a folding book that you can, you know, take out. Each one of these is a page, and there's you can print on, on both sides and so on. And uh, you have to just figure out how to navigate it. This is a, basically a two-page book. It's just the front and the back, and she plays with you know, before and after, pro and con, and all of these dualities. And here, it's a book that I, I, when I talked with her in her studio, I said, oh, can you help me? What is this called? It doesn't have a name. It's an eight-sided structure that she created, and she called it a flip book. But a flip book is something that most people think of where you just flip through the pages and you get these images moving, like an animation or something, but in a material form. So what happens with this one is you can, um, you can flip these around, and on each of these little surfaces, uh, is a word or a couple of words, and they're all, you read them differentially, but they're all like in relation, and you have to look really, really carefully to see what's hidden uh, beneath. And if you're not really inquisitive, you're going to miss <laughs> half of what she's written there. And so m m much of what she does is thematizing memory loss just with the erosion of time you know, this kind of erosion of, of uh, ourselves over time. And she's thinking about that and, you know, personal loss and um, all of that. So hers, she's much more abstract about what she talks about. You know, I don't know what she likes to eat for lunch or anything like that. Some of them are, are more like that, and others tell more, more personal stories. But that's a, a, a very physical engagement with mm -hmm. what's the concept of the page? Where's the binding? Um, you know, how do we how do we start? How do we end? Where do we go from here? Uh -huh. um, Are you allowed to touch? I mean, it's in the Mills College, right? And it's in the museum. It's in the uh, special collection. It's in the special collection. So, yeah, are you allowed to touch it? Yeah, with gloves, you know. <laughs> it's like so it'd be like treated like a manuscript yeah. at the Bancroft or something yeah. like that, where yeah. you have to be very careful with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but it has a special status as a book. It's also one of a kind, right? Yeah. There, there. She, she does. She's not making. Number. Okay. But, yeah, mm -hmm. and then obviously most of them get deposited there. I, I first encountered her when I was in San Diego. For some reason, I was uh -huh. looking down there in the special collections, and then I saw Julie Chen's work, which stood out to me as so amazing. And she ends up she's right here, so I got mm -hmm. to go to her studio and talk with her about you know. And I was so kind of dumbfounded, but also relieved when she didn't have a vocabulary for what I was talking about. <laughs> so I had all these questions written out, ready for, now what do you call this when you do that? I don't know, I just do it, you know? So, <laughs> so I had to you know, try to figure out how to describe some mm -hmm. of these things. You had to make up the vocabulary. Yeah. I, I, we don't have very much time, but I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you this stupid question, uh, the kind of question that people often ask me that, that I'm completely dumbfounded. <laughs> I have no idea. It's the kind of question that my students ask me. You know, like when I wrote a book, I wrote a book about films, and they said, what's your favorite film? Oh, yeah. oh no, not so that So let question. me ask you this. I'll try to make it more intellectual than that. Let me see if I can make it more intellectual. OK, what I mean by that is actually, what you know, are there, is there a work of art among the ones that you were dealing with that spoke to you particularly, mm -hmm. where you felt like, I, real, I, I must talk about this work of art. It's, it's, it, has, uh, it has taught me something, it's moved me. I need to convey this to other people. Mm -hmm. Is there one that, one that you would single out and that you would like to, to talk about? Sure, I will jump to another slide. And I think I would have to go to Faith Ringgold. Yeah, Other African-American yeah. artists and her quilts. quilts yeah. um, this is one called um, Who's Afraid of Aunt Jemima? And <laughs> it's one of her early quilts. And she gives Aunt Jemima a story. And she, it's, it's just brilliant. And what we see here are these are pages writ with text. So one, two, three, four. And you go up here, five, six, seven, eight, nine. She's numbered them so you know how to go, what you need to go to. They're alternating with the images, and all of these are paintings of relatives of Aunt Jemima, who's featured here um, <laughs> in, the, in the center. And um, so she creates this whole fictional family, and they're all different races and various shades and so on. She gives her this delightful story. 
and uh, then she kills her off and gives her a proper African funeral. And um, you know, it's playful, it's smart, it's you know, doing that kind of talking back, rewriting uh, of racist stereotypes. It also is really engaging with the concept of the page in an interesting way. Um, so that a, 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 quilt, a quilt square becomes a page. She does, um, and then it's also, the, the thing that I kept realizing in working on all these different kinds of things is that there are certain things that cross over mm -hmm. that I found very interesting. So the concept of the page, certainly in any book form, and artist books in particular, mm -hmm. in Teresa Cha's dicte, you know, she's playing and she's linking the page to the screen. And, you know, and, and then in comic books, it's obvious. Mm -hmm. In story quilts, it comes up in a, in a new way. So quilt, uh, excuse me, um, the, the concept of the page, but also framing. So this is a, called the French Collection. It's a series of, of quilts that she made. And keep in mind, these are huge. And I did have the opportunity to see Ringgold's quilt in person. And it was stunning to walk into the gallery and be overwhelmed by this color and the texture. And there were these little school kids getting actually history lessons uh, <laughs> from uh, their teacher about race in the United States. And, um, but here, she you know, creates this autobiographical persona that doesn't look anything like her. And here, they're dancing in the Louvre. And you know, she's imitizing. Um, Motherhood, this particular woman uh, married a Frenchman, had two children, he died, she stayed in France, and sent her children back to the US with a woman to, take, to raise them. And it's like this tough choice about being a woman, being an artist, being a mother, being a, uh, an African American. She says that everything, in Ameri everything American in America is about race. That's a quotation from her. And so she thematizes that, but also genders it and, and makes, you know, makes uh, a whole story around it. The other thing, it's told in epistolary form. And what you can't see is that up here, there are, I think, like six letters and down there. So the text frames the image throughout. And so you go back and forth. And of course, for the real object, it's really, really hard because it's so high and so low. You have to literally you know, move your body and get some help in, in order to be able to read it. But that's another way that this kind of forced physical engagement with you know, the object, with the, with the piece. And here she's also doing a whole critique you know, the kids are dancing. They're not paying any attention to the heavy, gilded, important, framed artwork in the background. And William Marie is looking directly at us. So there's a sense that, you know, a part of visual studies critique of art history is that modes of looking in everyday life and not the ways we're told we need to look at when we're looking at important art and we're told why it's important and, and so on and so on. You know, with all of the... the uh, the things that try to keep us from getting too close to the art, the, the what are those velvet ropes and all that, that, and the architectural way that museums are designed to you know, move you from one space to another and tell you what's important to look at. So she's just unpacking a whole lot in just this mm -hmm. one. And she goes on to, you know, to tell the, the full story. So with this, I feel like it's just so rich on so many levels. There's you know, the, the personal, even though it's not explicitly about her life. It is about her life and her choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and your experience of walking into the museum and yeah, yeah and being uh, feeling these are very powerful. Oh, and this is that that was our signal oh. that it's time for us to um, turn things over to the audience. Okay. So as Tim mentioned earlier, uh, there's is there one microphone? Uh, one microphone. Okay, it's a small room though. And so um, any of you who have questions or comments um, for Hertha are invited to, to ask for the microphone and, and, uh, and, and speak. There we go. <laughs> Kathy. Oh, it has a cord too, so careful. <laughs> I heard the congratulations Hi. on the publication of the book. Mm -hmm. Earlier, you had talked about how 
when you were selecting the artists you chose to feature in the book, that trauma was a theme yeah. uh, that connected them. And I was hoping you could say a little bit more about the relationship between these kinds of intermediate forms, especially with books, um, mm. and how they might be more effective in portraying trauma, or maybe more effective in terms of um, healing from trauma. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think, I don't remember, I, I know I should remember this, but I don't remember who said that after the Holocaust, you know, we can't, we can't even create art, we can't write, we can't, you know, it's, it's kind of the end of everything. Mm -hmm. And yet people continually do, not only about the Holocaust, such as Art Spiegelman's mouse that uh, I talk about, but about all kinds of trauma. And then, you know, the, the Holocaust studies has kind of, uh, hasn't morphed. It, it, it was the launching point for a lot of trauma theory applied to a lot of different areas. So I talk about Pete, Peter Najarian, who is Armenian-American. And he did not experience the Armenian genocide, but he experienced as a second generation uh, person his mother's experience and her survival and issues that get passed on to him and what he doesn't know and so on. And he grapples with that um, in his life and as, well as, you know, as well as other things, but that's a big one. And I think... Um, I think the sense, like, let's say with Spiegelman, and I would say also with Teresa Chaw, who's, you know, dealing with this um, dislocation due to Japanese colonization of Korea, um, and, and this longing for some return or for some wholeness or for some healing, and never, ever having that fully realized. But the important thing is to keep on seeking it, to keep on, um, you know, I guess to not giving to, to not giving up, and part of that is through uh, not letting it be erased from history, personal history as well as more collective history. So I think it's part of an overall uh, struggle to find an appropriate means of representation for what for many in trauma theory say, and this is now being challenged more and more, that is unrepresentable. Um, so even though it's, there are claims to the unrepresentability of trauma, um, th there are all kinds of efforts to do so. Um, I know uh, recently, well, maybe not so recently, a couple years ago, uh, um, Schwab, I'm blanking, I know her and everything. Are you thinking about Gabriella Schwab? Schwab um, had a book about being the survivor of Germans and what it meant to be a survivor of perpetrators uh, as being potentially, as being, I won't say potentially as traumatic, but being traumatic in its own way mm -hmm. and you know, having the courage to face that and talk about that. And she talks about haunting legacies. Uh, and every one of the people, and I think probably most human beings have some kind of haunting legacy to deal with in their lives, you know, or their families. So I see it as this exploration as an attempt, not as, you know, not as uh, necessarily the best or only way. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I'm interested in the question of trauma and representation mm -hmm. as well. And it seems to me that uh, one of the things that you're pointing to with the focus on reading as experience mm -hmm. rather than reflection mm -hmm. is, has to do with the unrepresentability of trauma mm -hmm. and the way in which one can reach it, not through reflection, but through some mm -hmm. uh, creation of experience. Mm -hmm. And what I was thinking about the way in which this kind of representation eliminates, in a certain way, eliminates temporality. Because what seems to be focused on here is the moment in all its layering, mm, that's rather than a linear notion um, that doesn't have the same kind of layering. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just wondered whether you could say something about the relation of um, 
trauma in the, I don't know the book, so mm -hmm. I don't know what you've done, but could you say a little bit more about how it connects to representation in the book that you've written? Um, I would say that I would like to think that these pieces are, I, I like what you call reading as experience. I think that's absolutely true. But I, I want to eliminate reflection because it's a part of it. So it's like this, not even a duality, but a multiplicity of, of parts of the brain that get fired up, and the body, for that matter, in some of these interactions. But I really like that your phrase, uh, reading as ex experiential and embodied in a way. And then does it get put into a narrative? Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the relation of narrative? Let me, let me show you a different, oops, I'm going the wrong direction here. Different slide. I just added it. Should be there, okay. Um, this is from Spiegelman, and I, I, I hope this addresses, because he's very directly dealing with, um, with trauma and the Holocaust and being this, the survivor of survivors and the way that transgenerational trauma gets passed on and in these and what's spoken and what's not spoken, in what's visible and what's attempted to be erased, and so on. And I think of the Art Spiegelman's mouth, some of, most of you are probably familiar with it, as having, um, I used to think it had three narratives, now I think it has four. So it has the story of, of um, Spiegelman getting his father's story, that whole process. It has the father's story, and it has uh, the story of, um, what a, the vexed relationship between the father and the son. But it also has a, an absolutely silent story of the absent mother, the mother who commits suicide, the mother whose diaries are destroyed by her husband. So we learn about this you know, over uh, the course of the two volumes. And she's kind of becomes, comes to represent those who were lost who never got to testify or give testimony or have any shred of their existence uh, acknowledged. And so we've got the mediated story of Vladek, his father, <clears throat> and a whole critique of that mediation. And we've got this nothing there there for Anja, as Spiegelman refers to her, his, his mother. Um, so how do you tell a story of loss, not loss, how do you tell a story of erasure, of, you know, what, of, of being, of annihilation, right? So it's, it's a real challenge, but I think he does that by the way he, um, the way he weaves his absent mother throughout and the way that she stands for more. Also, I think in, in, in Mouse, I mean, just the, use of the animal metaphor. I mean, these most of the animals represent nations, except for the Jews, who are mice, whether they're Polish or German or whatever. And so it's an interesting way to, and then his use of masks, where he, you know, right here, he's sitting at his desk wearing a mouse mask. Um, Anyway, he's, he's wearing a mouse mask, and, you know, and people pass as, as poles, which mean supposed to mean that they're not Jewish, and it's a way to survive but the you know, use of masks to talk about identity. There's a very powerful image of uh, inside of a, a camp where somebody's claiming, I'm not Jewish, I'm this or that, and you know, he's drawn both ways. And... Uh, it doesn't matter to the Germans. They think he's Jewish, he's Jewish. And so it's, you know, it's all about the power. There's one image um, here, and the temporal part of it, let me just say that. This one image is really, I think, just typical. He's, this is Artie taking down his father's stories, but this is the past right here with the heavy uh, shading, and uh, we have the beginning of the story in Vladik's voice. But the markings on Artie's pant legs kind of blend into the past. So it's a very beautiful image of the, him mediating past and present um, as the amenuences for his father. Um, and there are just little subtle things like that that he does throughout. Another way he frames the past, there's the son and the father, and then this is 
the frame of them leaving as they're trying to escape, of the father and mother leaving as they're trying to escape. What you don't see here that is also very important is that this road is in this shape of a swastika, which shows you that they're never going to escape the grip of the Nazis. Um, and then I think the one that was not in Mouse, but was drawn by uh, Spiegelman and published elsewhere, takes this even further. Now we're into his kids are grown up, and they're now third generation. And he creates this image of himself and his daughter, who's playing with a Mickey Mouse. Mm -hmm. And then haunting the big backdrop are these you know, image of, of hanged uh, mice that comes directly out of mouse. So this, this shadowing of the past, as if there's no escaping it, is then you know, put forward even into the next generation. And that sense of when does transgenerational trauma ever, you know, be a, heck, is it possible to be extinguished? Thanks. This is um, this is very interesting and stimulating. Um, I, I'm thinking about um, Mouse and the way the absent mother and also the absent brother yeah. are present in the book. Um, through their photographs, which yeah. are reproduced there yeah. um, as a frontispiece in one case, and then in the other case is part of Artie's own story. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the way for Mouse that the production of the narrative as first as a comic book, in the case of, what is it called, the, that comic book that he makes about his mother early on, which then gets incorporated into oh, yeah. the title. Prisoner on the Hill Planet. Exactly, yes. Um, and I'm wondering, um, thinking about that, um, about the way in which the book contains the photograph, which is perhaps, although it's not presented this way, as a kind of trigger or a, 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 almost a fetish for something that's absent, which palliates and also sets off that anxiety around loss. Um, I'm wondering about the, the role of, um, of books in general um, and the relationship that they have as autobiographical text to some of the works which are not books, like Carrie Mae Weems' mm -hmm. work, which is perhaps best thought of as an installation, mm -hmm. or quilts, or, or objects that are artist books, but are much more, at least in the images that you have, like objects rather mm -hmm. than like books. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's some kind of tension going on in the question of self-representation or self mm -hmm identification, whatever we're going to call it, that is the work of autobiography, that these artists are actually pushing against perhaps narrative, perhaps linearity, and all of the things sure. that, yeah. for, that, that are attended with the book medium mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I I guess, yeah, so if you could just. I'm just going to give you an example from Teresa Cha who was really a conceptual artist, uh, an experimental filmmaker. Where is she? Come on. Um, and um, I, this is just an example of text that she messes with. And if you read like we normally would read this side, and then that side, it doesn't really make any sense. And what you have to figure out, uh, in addition to using a lot of uh, kind of a cinematic style, I call it, but it could be where she's treating a page like a screen. You have to figure out that she really wants us to read this way. So going across and down and following the spread and not just the single page. And again, you know, she's, she's doing all kinds of ways, all kinds of physical uh, manipulations on the page and around the page to get a sense of disruption, of the difficulty of articulation. Uh, of you know all of the ways that you know we're we're stifled, and so she does that through um, through what she writes, and she does it with some of the images that she includes. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say about Mouse. Oh, the photographs. Um, I talk about those photographs as they're you know the one you said comes in the frontispiece of the dead brother that he never ever met. And then there's one of in Prisoner on the Hill Planet of him and his mother. And then there's one of the father quite late and wearing a jail, a prison outfit that I, there was some photo booth, which I still, if anybody knows anything about that practice, I am, I just can't get my head around that 
you know, that they were already commercializing it before you even got home. Um, at any rate, I think if you take those three photographs, the only three that he reproduces, and you put them together, you have the Spiegelman family that never existed but should have, right? And then you think about Marianne Hirsch's notion of Holocaust photography, and when you're looking at what looks like a photo of a family, but what you're really seeing, if you know, are all the people who are not there that should have been, right? And so it's not what's in the photograph, it's what's in the viewer that makes that Holocaust photography. So it's a, you know, uh, he's playing around with all of that. And, uh, well, maybe he's not playing around. He's, the concepts that Hirsch finally comes up with. And then um, the rest of the photographs, he, he sketches, you know. He, he draws them as if, you know. So there are a lot of photographs in there, but only three reproduced. So, sorry. Thanks. Thank you. Are we kind of... recovery from trauma. Mm -hmm. Another approach uh, was Charlie Chaplin's making a film called The Dictator. Mm -hmm. Charlie Chaplin knew what was happening to the gypsies, mm -hmm. which predated the you know, Holocaust by six, seven years. Mm -hmm. So he made the film called The Dictator, mm -hmm. in which he satirizes Hitler mm -hmm. to great success as a film. Years later, he was asked, are you, a, are you Jewish? And he gave such a classy answer. His natural accent was British. He said, I can't say I have had that honor. <laughs> because he's a gypsy. <laughs> well, this is a well-established fact of history. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Thank well, I, thank all of you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.